is God's word. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is God's word. Paul wrote to a church that was pulled in various directions. The Apollos group, the Paul group, and even the Peter group. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 22, just two verses before what he's writing now. So one of Paul's main goals in the whole letter of 1 Corinthians was to unify, unify, unify. It's one of the purposes for the book of 1 Corinthians. So what, what could Paul write that would help to keep the church in Corinth together? He began by writing chapters 1, 2, and 3, which we've already studied, about worldly wisdom compared to godly wisdom. Next, uh, starting here now in chapter 4, he wrote about church leadership. What about church leadership? What, what specifically he's writing is what view of church leadership promotes church unity in the ancient church in Corinth? And two things he holds together, as we'll see as we break down and unpack these verses. Two things are held together in order to have a biblical view of church leaders. Number one, church leaders are servants of Christ. An answer to Christ first. If you will, it's vertical. Uh, servants of Christ is the first point of those two points to be held together. The second point is church leaders serve us. So it's two, vertical and horizontal, if you will. The balance of both is important for a view of church leadership that unifies. It brings us to our main point to say it another way. On your bulletin handout, it says it this way. Church leaders are servants of Christ, which means Christian leaders serve Christ by serving others. So we'll see this in three points. Verses 1 and 2 unpack this truth that the leaders or servants or stewards must be faithful Verses 3 and 4 say that leaders are evaluated by the Lord, not by the world or even by self. Number 3 and verse 5, he brings this passage to conclusion by making this point. The final evaluation of leaders must await the Lord's coming. Of course, there's more through the chapter as he'll unpack, but we're just going that far for this morning. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So as we begin our study, verse 1, who is the us? This is how one should regard us. Who's he referring to? To whom is the word us referring here? It's the apostles. If you let your eyes glance down to verse 9, just eight verses later, Paul wrote, us apostles. I'll read verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. I wanted you to notice in verse 9, us apostles. That's who he's referring to. 
In fact, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 22 again, he names two apostles, himself and, and Peter. The us is apostles. What, what should they do in regarding the church leaders? The apostles, us, that's what he's writing about. This is how, as servants of Christ. The same principle applies to all church leaders building up God's building, as he mentioned God's building back in chapter 3, verse 9. How is that? How should people in churches view church leaders as servants? That doesn't seem surprising to you. You've heard that all before, right? You might be surprised to learn here that the Greek word for servant is not the Greek word deacon. As we often say, the word servant or serving is the word deacon, but not in this case. It's not the word that Paul chose to use here. Instead, carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul used a Greek word for under orders. Under orders. The illustration is, is used, and this word is used, on under rower, as if you're in a rowing team in a boat and a captain calls out the rowing signal for the rowing boat and all of the under rowers must follow his signal when to row. An under rower. So the under rower has no authority of his own to decide when he'll pull, when he'll row. He's under orders, under authority to follow what the captain says in terms of when to row. His only business as an under rower is to mind his own business and to do exactly what he's commanded to do by the captain. Row when told to row. It's, it's that simple. So you see the language here, as Paul puts it, is very clear in terms of the authority and chain of command. So how does this apply? He's writing about apostles, which includes elders, missionaries, authors. We often see them as leaders. Yes, but apostles, elders, missionaries, authors are to be regarded as what, says Paul? Servants. Servants of Christ. How do these fit together? Leaders or servants? First or last? The answer is servants. The answer, as you might have picked up from verse 9, is last. It's one of the great truths of Christianity that Paul is now just unpacking as way of, by way of reminder. When he comes to the issues in Corinth, he's giving them basic truths to start in order to rebuild unity for them. He's giving them truths. So this truth we've heard so often, haven't we? It's often stated across the church, so familiar to us, it doesn't even surprise us. Even our country's secular businesses, its hospitals and agencies have borrowed this truth. Even the American military has long recognized and taught and continues to teach this truth. Leaders must be servants. The, the last shall be first. That in order to be a good leader, a person must serve those he is leading. Take this from chapter 2. Paul wrote about Christ crucified and naturally, of course, risen again. It's the only pattern for the church, for, for the foundation of the church, built upon Christ being our servant. Mark 10, 45, he came not to be served, but to serve. Serve how far? To the extent that he gave up his life as a ransom for many. So the service of Christ is the foundation of the church, and upon that same truth, we're building our ideas around all church leadership. If Christ, who is the head, has served us to the extent of giving his life for us, then that's the pattern for all future church leadership. It's the only pattern 
for the rest of the structure to be built up upon the foundation of Christ and him crucified and risen. Christ our leader, Christ our head, Christ our servant. And so all of us are servants. And why is Paul writing that here specifically? He detected that the Corinthians didn't have a proper grasp of Paul, of Paul's role, of Paul's role as an apostle. And remember where we are. Paul's writing a letter to them. He's the author of it. So if they didn't have a correct view of Paul as an apostle writing to them, how could they receive the letter and interpret the letter properly and to receive the impact of God through the letter of Paul if they weren't having a proper view of Paul? They didn't have a right view of him. So how could that help? They needed that corrected before Paul could write the remaining chapters. How did they think of Paul? As a boss. The boss who's away. By this time, he had gone away to other cities and as a missionary. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Christ is the head. Christ is the, the boss, if you want to use that word. I work for him. Paul works for Christ. He said, this is how you're to regard me and us. We are servants of Christ. I am a servant of Christ. And so what's Paul's position in working for Christ? His position was as an apostle, his position as a servant, and furthermore now he unpacks this verse 1, his position is that of one of the stewards of the mysteries of God. That Paul and the apostles were not only servants of Christ, but also stewards. Christians in Corinth needed to think of Paul as bringing news previously hidden. Mysteries, stewards of the mysteries of God. Things that were previously not understood in anywhere in Corinth were understood in Corinth because Paul brought that truth there. He's now helpfully explaining the truth about Christ Jesus to a city that never had that before. He brought them the gospel. Formerly, they didn't know. And now, thanks to Paul and other apostles coming to Corinth and preaching it, the gospel had become known to them and a church had been formed there. Paul did not himself invent what he's teaching them. Paul received this content from Christ himself. He's a servant of Christ. Christ is his master. Christ teaches him what to teach and preach as a missionary, and he comes to Corinth to do so. He's not the originator of the teachings. He's a dispenser, a steward, one who gives things away. We think of it as an executor of a large estate. You, you simply dole out the things that the documents say go to certain persons from a large estate. You get the car, you get the garage, you, you get the, the um, family pet, you get the, this amount from the bank. You're, you're dispensing from a large estate. Paul's job is to be a steward of the mysteries of God. You get to hear about who Christ is. You get to hear about how our sins are cleansed. You get to hear about his crucifixion and resurrection. His job is to give the riches of God verbally while he was in Corinth, and now, as he's away from Corinth, to give the same riches of God in a letter addressed to Corinth, a letter with basics that they needed reviewed. He's giving them good news from God. And they must think of Paul that way so that they can receive the letter with the basics and with the reminders and with the fresh teaching. So building on that, Paul now wrote verse 2, which says that the central thing required of stewards, stewards of riches, is that they be found faithful. That is, faithful to give out the riches, faithful to give the way that the master has said to give. 
There's a review to be done by the master. The steward can't just make things up or do things the way he would decide. God himself would review Paul's work as a steward and determine whether Paul was consistently generous with the word of God and gave the pure and true teachings of Christ. The steward of the mysteries of Christ was answerable to Christ. God is the one who required Paul to be faithful in his work as an apostle, faithful in his work as a preacher, as a missionary, to begin the church in Corinth. He's taken them all the way back to how this all started. Now that that's been reviewed, we see leaders or servants or stewards must be faithful, and we move to our second point. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So my second point is this, that leaders are evaluated by the Lord, not by the world or even self. There's four options for who will hold Paul accountable. Number one, the believers over there in the church of Corinth. Number two, a human court. Number three, Paul himself. Or number four, God. Let's go through the four options. Door number one. What if the believers in Corinth judged Paul and determined that Paul was or was not faithful in bringing the truth of the word of God to them? Paul would, not count, Paul would count that as a very small thing, he writes here in verse 3. That can't be it. It can't be the church in Corinth that determines what the apostle Paul had been doing. Door number two. What if a human court, a tribunal of men, should take up the matter of Paul's faithfulness or lack of faithfulness in bringing the mysteries of God. Again, Paul would count that a very small thing. It can't be door number two. Door number three, as Paul's own evaluation of his ministry. He's an apostle after all. You, you'd think that might be the answer. Verse three, he writes, I do not even judge myself. However, then Paul went on to write in verse four that even if he were to judge himself, what Paul would find as a verdict is his honest assessment being, I'm not aware of anything against myself. But even in that case, so what? Because he goes on to write what's very important. He followed that by writing, but I am not thereby acquitted. I'm not thereby found innocent, justified, just because I cannot see anything I taught wrong. In other words, what the Apostle Paul says about the Apostle Paul does not even settle the matter. Some people, preachers, ask for an amen. Can I get a wow? I mean, wow. The Apostle Paul's assessment of his own ministry does not settle the matter. Wow. Well, even if the evaluation of an apostle doesn't settle the matter, what would it take to get an official verdict regarding Paul's ministry in Corinth? It takes God. And here's an extremely important sentence that he's been leading up to the whole time, listed at the very end of verse 4. We must not miss this. Paul wrote this, quote, It is the Lord who judges me, end quote. What does it mean? It means that it is the Lord who takes stock of how I've performed as a preacher, a teacher of the gospel of grace, and whether or not I've consistently given out the beauty of the message of the grace of God for the forgiveness of sinners found only in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It's a buildup of these three plus chapters now. It's the Lord who determines Paul's work. He's a servant of Christ. He answers to Christ. Christ is his master. Christ will determine. Has the gospel been preached by Paul faithfully? 
The Lord is the one who says yes or no. Ultimately, you see how this unifies? We could could all say amen. We, We all agree that it's the Lord alone who ultimately answers whether Paul has been faithful as a steward of the mysteries of Christ. So any minister anywhere in Corinth, any minister since, does not merely answer to their church, does not merely answer to the local leaders, does not merely answer to the regional leaders or the national leaders. Every minister, every missionary answers to the Lord our God, for everyone is a servant of Christ. Down through the years since Paul wrote this, there's been all the church history that we've read about and maybe could read more. But you know stories about many missionaries, many pastors, many elders who have received harsh judgments, and they've been proven to be wrong. We also alternatively heard about many missionaries, many reformers, many other ministers and pastors and preachers who have been counted as acceptable. And it's been proven that their ministries did not bring forward the truth of the grace of God and Jesus Christ alone. People have been wrong both ways. What unifies the church of Jesus Christ to his degree to agree the ultimate court for all such evaluations for the final judging of the ministries of Christ's people belongs to Christ. Why? Because missionaries and elders are Christ's servants and they work for him first. You are the recipient of ministries from pastors and elders and deacons and others. But you're not their master. Servants of Christ means Christ is their master. He's my master. He's the master of every elder, every missionary. This helps. This unifies. This reminds us of what we know to be true. What unifies us is to agree about the ultimate court. The ultimate court. He repeats it in Romans 14.4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Romans 14.4. Along with that is another important truth that Paul's writing here in our passage. The pastor's own conscience is not a good guide. The apostle's own conscience is not a good guide. He might be telling himself as an apostle or as a missionary to feel guilty. When Christ says, those aren't sins, even if they were sins, you repented of them, they're forgiven, and you stand cleared before heaven. Continue. Or an elder might be telling himself, he's fine. I'm just fine. When God says, I don't allow that. The status of any church leader before God is not to be decided based on how he feels, nor even on his own research, evaluation, and settled, honest opinion about himself. In my case, is not judged by me. My conscience, my figuring, my research, my opinion, my recollection. I might be too lenient on myself. Or I might be too hard on myself. I might even deceive myself in one direction or another. Rather, my case is not judged by me at all. It's judged by Christ, ultimately. Naturally, we're responsible to one another. We're expected to make evaluations of ourselves. But you see his point. It's an underlying, unifying point. Which brings us to our third point of the message and the fifth verse where he leads all this. The final evaluation of leaders must await the Lord's coming. Let me read verse 5. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Verse 5. Paul draws a conclusion now to his readers. Before he continues, there's much more in the chapter. We'll get to that next time. But for his readers now, he draws a conclusion in verse 5 to this part of the argumentation. Do not pronounce judgment on your preachers, your missionaries, your teachers before the Lord's coming. Before the final resurrection, the end of the world, when Christ returns is what he's referencing. Before the Lord's judgment on us all. Day here is referring to the day of revealing of all things, yourself too, when you too will come under the searching lights of the holy God and you'll be covered by his mercy, thankfully. How the missionaries behaved on the mission field may or may not be known right now, but it will be known. How the preachers preached grace, how the church members responded and lived, what did they believe, what did they do, everything that was done and Every worship service, every meeting, every church building, every home, every vehicle on the way, every mission trip, all of it will be completely researched, exposed, and found out, be thoroughly reviewed and evaluated by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, even the crucified and risen one. What was done in private, or what he says here, darkness, will have the light of the world upon it. Not just the things said and not said, not just the things done and not done, but also, listen carefully, read carefully verse 5, the very purposes and motives of every heart for what was said and what was not said. The reasons of the mind and the thoughts for everything that was done and all things that were not done. We have to wait, in some sense, ultimately, we can only do so much as human beings in our understanding, our research, our asking one another. We have to wait. We're not very good at waiting as Americans, as humans. It's not just a modern American problem. This is tough. Paul's reminding them of something ultimate here, which does unify. We all can get on board and agree with this. But look how hard waiting is. We need to wait for medical tests. We need to wait for the award ceremony because this was submitted now to the judges. Who, who are those judges that they get to judge these things? We have to wait. Is it a 9.9? .9? Is it a 9.8? We have to wait. They're not ready yet. We have to wait for the academic test to show our score. Why should the professor get to evaluate my paper? I thought my paper was good. We have to wait. We wait for sports competitions to show how the judges rated them. All else waits for what in church leadership the revelations of god about us the revelations of god about our work about our statements about our actions about our inactions about our eternal internal motivations do you know what that will reveal a lot of stuff it will reveal these things there will be wonderful things done for the wrong reasons there will be terrible things done but with the best of intentions. There will be bad things done for bad motives. There will be faithful and godly work done with faithful and godly motives. All of these various things will be weighed and considered by the one who knows. And the truth will be accurately named. The response from heaven will be displayed 
and all will be in agreement and we'll be in awe at his righteousness and his mercy and his valuation because our God does all things well. What will be the result for you? Let's go back to the idea of God building his church. Verse 9 of chapter 3, we are God's building. That makes us contractors. It's his building, it's his blueprint, it's his result and his methods. We just work for him, we're contractors, if you will. We work for Christ on his building, his church. And Paul's writing all of this, filling out that same concept to those who are building on the foundation that Paul built, he wrote at the uh, latter half of chapter 3. He's saying, Christ will show that I built well. Christ will show that you were building on top of what I built. In chapter 3.10, he writes this, According to the grace of God given to me, I, like a skilled master, built, uh, laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, Paul wrote that each one's work will be revealed by fire and that the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It's a severe judgment. It's a severe evaluation. It gets down to the real truth. But our God is a God of mercy. And he's built his whole church on his mercy. None of us has deserved anything. And so his mercy is supreme. And we understand that. Well, there's more in chapter 4. We'll cover that later. Let me wrap up here. What have we seen? Church leaders are servants of Christ, which means Christian leaders serve Christ by serving others. Leaders, servants, stewards must be faithful. Leaders are evaluated by the Lord, not by the world, not even by self. And the final evaluation of leaders must await his coming. So this is my application. It's not just to leaders. It's to every believer. Three things. Number one, you're answerable to Christ. Whether you're sincere or insincere, we can't know. You yourself may even be mistaken about that. If you're genuine or if you have questionable motives, we cannot see, but Christ knows. You're answerable to Christ. Number two, ultimately, it's not your place to pass judgment on others, including your leaders. Leaders are here to serve Christ by serving you. That doesn't mean they take orders from you. They take orders from Christ the Master. We covered that earlier, just reminding us of the application point. Ultimately, it's not your place. Number three, look forward to your reward, which comes only through Christ. None of us have earned anything. There's no reward based on what we've done. There's only reward based on what Christ has done through us. He gives us the grace, then we perform well, and he gets the crowns. Look forward to your reward that comes through Christ. The gospel is about the mercy and grace of Christ. He is the judge, and he is also the forgiver. He's the one who uses us in our halting ways, in our filled weaknesses. He uses us. Our reward and commendation does not come to us through our own good deeds. Listen to how he says at the very end of our passage, each one will receive his commendation from God. Are you going to receive a condemnation? commendation? Yes. Our reward and commendation comes to us through the crucified Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we get commendation. It's unbelievable. We don't even deserve it in a way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are teachings that unify churches. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to serve you and serve others.